Amos chapter 5. Over the past chapters in Amos, we have learned of the unique place that God's people hold in His heart. This compels God not only to great blessings for His people, as we uh, think through the history of Israel and the, the, the track record of God with His people, but also to determined chastening of God's people. So we thought even last time we were together, this idea that we've considered for the last couple of weeks that judgment must begin at the house of God, us being warned that judgment will indeed fall on us, not judgment unto damnation, unto the lake of fire, but judgment unto reward and loss, for God will judge his people. And this is supposed to work in us a holy fear. And it is this idea, more perhaps the results of holy fear, that I would like us to think about this evening. When we left last week, I said that the great solution to this thought process, of this warning of judgment that was coming, this idea that we saw in Amos chapter 4 as Amos preached to these kind of Bashan, and called them to repent, but they would not. Instead, they would simply go to their same places of worship. They would go to Bethel, they would go to Gilgal, and they would do false, uh, false sacrifices, uh, sinful sacrifices. They would multiply their transgressions. God says He did thing after thing after thing, uh, plagues and famines and pestilence. And yet with each one He sent, He said, Yet have ye not returned unto Me. He says, therefore, I will do this thing unto you. Prepare to meet thy God. And then we finished by saying that the solution to this problem, the solution to the problem of us hardening our hearts, of us standing and resisting the call of the Lord when we find troubles and tribulations and we see a hand of chastening upon us, the solution is Humility, And indeed, that is what we see as we step into Amos chapter 5 this evening. We pick up in verse 1 of Amos 5, where we read this, reading to verse 3. Hear ye this word which I take up against you, even a lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel is fallen, she shall no more rise. She is forsaken upon her land, there is none to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, The city that went out by a thousand shall leave by an hundred. And that which went forth by an hundred shall leave ten to the house of Israel. So the Bible says that verses one through three are a lamentation, a song of mourning, which would normally be sung at the funeral of one who was dead. In this case, it's a song of mourning for, if you will, the death of Israel that was to come. It was a funeral mourning for that which was to come, for that which God prophesied, that would surely come to pass. And the implication of singing this lamentation at this time was that the judgment to come was declared already. In other words, it had gone forth from the Lord. It had been declared already. Therefore, it was, in, in this sense, as good as done. Which is why the funeral dirge could already be sung. And at this point, it's worth talking about the nature of God's declarations of judgments in the prophets. The nature of God's declarations in time. The Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, 
neither the Son of Man that he should repent. He hath said, and he shall and shall he not do it? Oh, excuse me, hath he said, and shall he not do it? That's the question. Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? When God says he will do something, the Bible says God will do it. There are no unforeseen circumstances which God could not have accounted for that would compel him to change his mind once he has a path moving forward. We cannot work God into a state of emotional frustration which would compel him to withdraw from us where he would not otherwise. God does not have bad days. God does not have hyper-emotional days. God does not have days where he's overly tired and so he's susceptible to not being as gracious as he would otherwise be. This is not the God that we serve. He is not a man that he should lie, nor is he the son of man that he should repent. And this is a curious idea. We talked this morning about the, 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 this, uh, a similar concept. We said the Bible makes it very clear that no man has seen God at any time. And yet we also see indications from the Old Testament that men interacted directly with God. And we recognized uh, this uh, seeming contradiction as no contradiction at all, but rather that no man has seen the Father, although many have seen manifestations of the one that we call the Son. We find another such seeming contradiction this evening, that God is not a man that he should repent, and he will not repent. When he has spoken, he will make it good. And yet, all throughout the Old Testament, what do we find but that there were instances of God repenting? Going all the way back to Genesis 6, it's been a little while now, I guess, since we've been there in Genesis But in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible says, It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. We also see in Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, The Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now we could continue with several other verses that speak to the same idea. But what we take note of as we think through the idea here, as we see these times where the Lord repented of something is that it is different in kind. There is a fundamental difference in kind between God's statement that he does not repent and the verses which we have just read. Now, it uses the same word, repent. You say, well, pastor, what is this difference in kind then? Well, in that verse that we read, in Numbers chapter 23, it says, God is not a man that he should repent. The idea here is the motivation for repentance. God is not fickle. He is not changeable. He does not make mistakes. He is not caught off guard. But let me ask you this. Is the only reason for repentance from anything, and again, when we talk about repentance, I guess I didn't define it this evening, When we talk about repentance at Legacy Baptist Church, we're not talking about being sorry over something intrinsically. That may accompany repentance. When we think of repentance in our day and age today, that would be the idea is to be sorry or to mourn or to feel intrinsic regret over something. But the idea of repentance in the scripture is is one much more akin to changing one's mind. Some will define it as a change of mind that brings about a change of action. Others, simply a change of mind. But the the concept of repentance is a change of mind. That's the essence of repentance. 
So then we ask this question, is the only reason to repent of something because I am changeable? Well, oftentimes with men, that is the reason why we repent of something. Because we are changeable or because we made a mistake. Because we did not foresee all of the circumstances at hand and now we have to change course because in the course that we took, it caught us off guard or or we were not ready for it. Well, God is not a man that he should repent. But what about a different scenario where repentance might come into play? What if I stayed the same? What if I made no mistake? What if I am not fickle, fickle nor changeable? What if I am not caught off guard, but rather, as I stay my course, the circumstances around me change? See, this is a different in kind sort of situation. I must stop doing something that I have previously done or start doing something I had previously not done, not because... I have changed, but in fact, in order to remain faithful to who I am, I change my actions because of the circumstances that are around me, the change of circumstances that are around me. There's a time where I wouldn't mind sitting down. There was a time where I wouldn't mind sitting down and watching a football game. My heart wasn't set on it. I didn't didn't dominate my schedule, and usually it was after the fact because Sundays are pretty busy as Christians. But then something changed. The nature of the game started to change. And I found myself not enjoying football anymore. The game wasn't worth having my values degraded in front of me. The game wasn't worth having to endure political grandstanding. And now, as a general rule, it's been... Several years since I've really watched a game of football in any extended fashion. Not because my enjoyment for what was historically known as football went away. I really didn't change in that regard. But because the conditions outside of me have changed. And have caused me, as I remain consistent to myself, to no longer enjoy watching the game. And so, in a sense, I repented of my behavior. I changed my behavior, but I didn't actually change at all. I remained dedicated to my principles and the game changed. And so my actions changed as the game changed. It's not that it was ever intrinsically a mistake to watch football. It's not that I felt some shame or guilt about watching football. It was that watching football changed. And so my attitude toward it changed as I remained consistent to my values and my principles. And this is the idea here. This is the contrast that we find in Scripture. Numbers says, God is not a man that he should repent. God is not fickle in repentance. God does not have bad days. God does not make mistakes. God does not change himself because God does not change. When God repents, but that does not mean God never repents. Only he is not a man that he should repent. When God repents, it is not because he has changed. It is because the circumstances around him have changed. And in his unchanging character, the change of circumstances necessitated a change in disposition, a change in actions. 
And this is what we find all throughout the scriptures. We find this in the days of the Exodus. When God's people sinned, God in his holiness sought to destroy them. But then Moses would intercede and his intercession compelled the mercy of God into their actions. Was it that God actually changed in any way, shape or form there? It was not, not at all. God's character did not change. God's justice upon sin was just as much there, but something happened. Something happened that invoked another part of God's character that allowed him to transition from justice to mercy. And that thing that allowed him to transition from justice to mercy within the bounds of his character was intercession, mediation. God did not change when he repented of that act that he was about to do. The circumstances around him changed. Moses stood in the, cap, in the gap between him, God and, and the people. And God, in consistency with his character, regarded this intercession. And on behalf of a righteous man, had mercy upon the multitudes. There's no change there in God. There's a change of action in response to changing circumstances. The same thing happened regularly in the book of Judges, and perhaps most evidently, the book of Jonah, where God declares that in 40 days, Nineveh would be destroyed. Then something strange happens. Of course, after Jonah gets there, he declares this 40 days. Something strange happens. Something perhaps we might even say unexpected happens. This wicked city, this Assyrian capital, they repent. Going so far as to put ashes on their livestock to show just how much they repented of their sin. Now, God's character never changed. God had even already given a declaration of judgment. In 40 days, they would be destroyed. But see, something happened. And what happened was Nineveh repented. And when Nineveh repented, the circumstances changed, invoking a new part of God's character, not, not new to God, but a different part of God's character, which was mercy. And so now God could repent of the judgment that he had declared against Nineveh because he could now, he was free now to show mercy in response to Nineveh's humility. And in Amos chapter 5, we see a very similar idea. Amos laments the soon death of the nation. That Israel, described here as a virgin, a nation of purity at one time, had now fallen, forsaken upon her land, with none to raise her up. Again, this had not necessarily completely happened yet, but this was the fate. This was the funeral dirge. This was the declaration of what was about to happen to Israel, the fate under which they were headed, that they were on a course, and that course would bring them to a collision course with God's judgment where they would meet their God. It was inevitable. It was the inevitable end of the path that they had chosen to walk, whereby the city that went out by a thousand would leave a hundred, and the city that which went forth by a hundred would leave ten. The idea there being the vast majority in this metaphor, at, at, at the very least, whether it's literal or not, we see a 90% casualty right here. 90% of the people in this metaphor would be destroyed in the judgment that was coming. A vast destruction. 
But as we continue, what we find is very similar to what we talked about with Jonah, very similar to what we talked about with Moses. As Amos declares the impending judgment, he makes it very clear this did not have to be their fate. So we read in verses 4 through 9. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, and ye shall live. But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall, shall come to naught. Seek the Lord, and ye shall live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel. Ye who turn judgment into wormwood, and leave off righteousness in the earth, seek him that maketh the seven stars and Orion, and turneth the shadow of death into the morning, and maketh the day dark with night, that calleth for the waters of the sea, and poureth them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name, that strengtheneth the spoiled against the strong, so that the spoiled shall come against the fortress." So we find here in verses 4 through 9 a call, a call unto humility. Seek me, Amos cries out in the name of the Lord. Seek me, the Lord says to his people, and ye shall live. Yes, we see this funeral lamentation that there will be this 90% casualty rate, that there will be destruction upon the land, that none will be uh, spared from this judgment. And yet he says, seek me and ye shall live. This call stands in dramatic contrast to the way that the nation of Israel had been living their lives. They had been rich. They had been oppressive. They had been selfish. They had been entitled. And God says that their choices had put them on a path to destruction, but they were still an off-ramp. There was still a way to avoid the inevitable damage and destruction of their rebellion. God says, stop seeking unto yourselves and seek unto me. Don't seek unto Bethel. Remember, we talked about that last week. This was one of two primary cities where Jeroboam had erected the golden calf, one in the southern end of his kingdom in Bethel, the other in the northern end of his kingdom in Dan. So this was a place of, of, of uh, a spiritual hub, a spiritual center of the nation of Israel, but it was that place of pagan worship. He said, don't seek unto Gilgal. We talked about Gilgal last week as well. Gilgal was named Gilgal, which means rolling. It was the place where after they crossed over Jericho, they, or they circumcised that, that generation who had come, the second generation, out of Egypt. They renewed the covenant there in the days of Samuel. It was a place of tremendous spiritual importance, yet it had become a place of deep pagan worship. He said, don't pass on to Beersheba, a city known all the way back to the days of Abram that had turned into a shrine of idolatrous worship. God says, don't trust in these places. Don't trust in Bethel. Don't trust in Gilgal. Don't trust in Beersheba because Gilgal is going to go into captivity also. The religious hub will not be spared in this judgment. Bethel will be utterly destroyed. That religious hub will not be spared in this judgment. Christian, there are times in our lives when we know that we are in trouble. When our choices have brought upon us consequences when our choices have aligned us with a path toward deep consequences, where the chastening hand of God is upon us, and we might even be able to look ahead, look forward, and say, if something doesn't change, I know there are bad days in front of me. 
and we come to ourselves and we realize that we have major issues that need to be solved and we come face to face with our sin or our selfishness, our pride, our impulsiveness, our anger, whatever it might be. And at that moment, Christian, at the moment that you see where you are and you see where you're headed, you are at a crossroads. To where will you turn? To whom will you turn? Here's the thing about that time of crossroads. God is never the only solution to that place of vulnerability. Now, from one perspective, he is. He's the only solution that matters. He's the only right solution. He is the only correct answer. But when you stand at that crossroads, one way leads to God, but there is always another way you can go. There's always another way you can go. So often there are other outlets in our days of difficulty, in our days of chastening. Safety nets, people that we can blame, friends that can bail us out, ways we can divert responsibility, ways we can avoid accountability. There's always another way. I can run to the Bethel of my own existence and I can find temporal comfort, temporal deliverance, without ever actually needing to humble myself and seek the Lord. Israel was confronted with their own sin through this prophet, Amos. And as he cried these words, we might even anticipate that they were feeling that vulnerability, convinced, at least in part, that judgment might actually be coming, that maybe this prophet Amos actually is, is, is correct in some of this. But the question was, what would they do with the information they'd been given? Would they fall back into some form of self-deliverance? Or self-justification? Would they fall back upon their idols? Would they fall back upon their strength, the might of their nation? It was a wealthy time in the land. Would they fall back upon their armies to say, well, maybe God will send someone to judge us, but our armies will be able to hold out. Maybe God will send someone to judge us, but he's done that before and he's never wiped us all out. He's always spared someone. He's always spared we, we, we've, we've not been wiped off the map. Will we fall back upon our excuses, upon our justifications, upon our habits, upon our routines, upon our solutions? Or would they fall on their faces before the true and living God? Seek the Lord, God told them, and ye shall live. If not, if they would not, if they would harden their hearts, as we talked about last week, hard hearts lead to hard days. If they would harden their hearts, they would see those hard days. If they would harden their hearts, the Bible says God would break out like fire and devour the house of Joseph. And there would be nothing that the false gods of Bethel or of Gilgal could do to stop him. Now in verse 7, God describes the manner of those unto whom he is talking. He calls them ye who turn judgment into wormwood and leave off righteousness in the earth so that they are reminded of the wickedness that God is calling out among them. A society of oppression, of injustice, of unrighteousness that would turn justice into bitterness. And take note of this combination that we see here in Amos chapter 5 of righteousness and justice being paired together. 
There is no righteousness apart from justice and no justice apart from righteousness. When you hear the idea of justice in our modern society today, it speaks of something very different than justice as it has historically been defined. It speaks of a justice that is devoid of righteousness, that is detached from righteousness. It speaks in modern society of the idea of justice in modern society is taking the property of one group of people and giving it to another group of people. But you see, that can't be justice. And the reason why it can't be justice is because it is unrighteous. It is stealing. You cannot do justice by stealing. It cannot be done. Justice cannot be separated from righteousness. Justice speaks in modern society of allowing certain communities to avoid the consequences of their actions because of their particular status as what what is called today marginalized. But see, this cannot ever be justice. And the reason why it cannot be justice is because it's dishonest. It is unrighteous, and justice cannot be separated from righteousness. So God calls them in verse 8 to seek him. And is he not worthy to be sought? Why seek into the golden calf of Bethel when they can seek into the God who made the seven stars of Orion? Speaking of the very well-known constellation located in the celestial equator, made up of seven primary stars. Why seek into the stones of Gilgal when they can seek into the God who makes the sun to rise and makes the sun to set, who causes the rain to fall upon the earth? The one who advocates for the weak in justice and righteousness so that the weak and the spoiled have an advocate in him. Why seek to something else when you can seek to the Lord? And of course, the answer to that is pride. Because our heart has this capacity to lie to us and to convince us that seeking some other solution but not having to yield my pride is better than humbling myself. In our minds, our heart will tell us something about how humility, humbling myself, will be an irrecoverable stain upon me when in fact, as we look into the scriptures, humility is not a stain, it is a virtue. That when we humble ourselves before God or man, what we feel, what we believe we're going to feel in our hearts, what our heart lies to us and tells us we are going to feel is this great shame and contempt that we can never outlive when in fact that's what happens when we harden ourselves in pride. That's what happens when we refuse to seek unto truth, when we refuse to seek unto the Lord. But when we seek unto the Lord in humility, what we find, Christian, is freedom. Release. Your heart will never tell you that because your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But the Bible tells you that. And Israel came to this crossroads where Amos says, don't trust in Bethel, don't trust in Gilgal, don't trust in the things you've been trusting in, don't hold to your pride, humble yourself, seek unto the Lord and live. Or harden yourself and prepare to meet thy God. And the essence of the call is that these who are the oppressors, who feel they are strong, would understand the bankruptcy of their own understanding and would cry out as those who are the spoiled rather than the spoilers. 
In other words, that these who have been the oppressors of the poor, these who have hardened their hearts against the Lord, would change the way they look at themselves. They would stop seeing themselves as the ones who have all the power. They would stop seeing themselves as the ones who are in control. And they would see themselves for who they truly are. They are the spoiled. They are the ones who are vulnerable. They are the ones who are weak. They are the ones who are at the point of destruction because of the very pride that compelled them unto that oppression to begin with that compelled them unto those actions to begin with. And when they see themselves in this way, in this light, as those who were spiritually bankrupt and in need of the Lord to be their fortress, it would be then that they would seek unto the Lord and they would be found in Him. But this was not them on that day. On the day that Amos was crying out these prophecies, it was not the disposition of Israel to humble their hearts. Much to the contrary, verses 10 through 13 tell us this. They hate him that rebuketh in the gate, and they abhor him that speaketh uprightly. For as much, therefore, as your treading is upon the poor, and ye take from him burdens of wheat, ye have built houses of hewn stone, but ye shall not dwell in them. Ye have planted pleasant vineyards, but ye shall not drink wine of them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. Therefore the prudent shall keep silence in that time. For it is an evil time. So far from anything like righteousness, so far from anything like justice, so far from being the spoiled and seeing themselves as such, they have become and see themselves as the spoilers, hating the just man, the man that would stand in the gate of the city and say, we must repent, we must do right, and they say, I hate that man. Abhorring the man that speaks uprightly, the man that would get up and say, no, let us do right, and they'd say, we don't want to listen to you, go away. Treading on the poor, afflicting the just, taking bribes, so much so, the Bible says, that any man who of prudence, that any man who had any prudence about him whatsoever would just keep silent. Because that's what happens to, to, to truth tellers in evil times. The prudent truth teller keeps his mouth shut in evil times. Maybe not the bold truth teller, but the prudent one does. And for this reason, God says to the nation of Israel, He says, you're going to build homes, but you're not going to get to live in them. You're going to plant vineyards, but you're not going to be able to drink the wine of their grapes. But here's the thing, Christian. It didn't have to be that way in their day any more than it has to be that way in our day. So God concludes in verses 14 and 15 with our text today. Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. The passage began with the phrase, seek the Lord. 
And the passage ends the same way, though the words are slightly different. Seek good and not evil. And unto this end, that ye may live, that the Lord may be with you. Hate evil and love the good. Establish judgment. And it may just be, Amos said, may just be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious. Joseph here being a representation of the tribe of Ephraim. Recall that in the days of Joseph, as his father was dying, that Jacob took his hand and he took Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he put his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh, though Ephraim was the younger of the two. And God and, and, and Israel, Jacob said, I am going to give each of your sons a full portion of my inheritance. In other words, Joseph was going to get the double portion. And that double portion was going to go one portion to Ephraim and one portion to Manasseh. And they would be the representatives of the, the tribe of, of Joseph in the land. So when the Lord God of hosts here speaks of the remnant of Joseph, it's particularly speaking of Ephraim. Of course, Ephraim would have been the primary tribe in northern uh, Israel. Manasseh was also a part of that in that land of Goshen and the, the area east of the Jordan. And so we see this representation of the nation itself, whereby Amos says it's just possible that God will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph if only you will repent. Now, I've already gotten into a bit of application this evening, but we have a few things to talk about as we conclude this passage today. First, we acknowledge that the society in which we live is very reminiscent of the society that Amos describes here. We are a society that has pursued evil, perverted justice in the name of justice, oppressed the poor in the name of of the poor and rebuked, if not silenced, those who speak to, I mean, even speak reason, much less righteousness. And while the United States of America is not Israel, the United States of America is under no direct covenant with Jehovah God. There has not been any sort of a sprinkling of blood. There's been no written or ratified testament. We have in God we trust on our money, but there was no sprinkling of blood. We've made prayers and we've dedicated things to the Lord, but there has been no ratification of a written testament. We are under no such covenant with Jehovah God as Israel was in their day. Yet it is inevitable that as society spirals into injustice and unrighteousness, as the wicked rule and as evil is emboldened to operate in the open, the people mourn, society is crippled and weakened and will inevitably, if something does not change, crumble. And just as we see a very similar trajectory of the United States of America to Israel in Amos' day, so too in Amos' words we find the right solution, the correct solution to the problem. Seek the Lord and live. No institution, no politician, no philosopher, no ideologue can save us. None of them can save us. The next election will not save us any more than the last election did, or the one before that, or the one before that. It will never happen. No institution will do it. If we can reform the press, it will not save us. 
If we can reform media, it will not save us. Only God can save us. If this nation has any hope, it will be hope that will be supplied as God fills his people to proclaim his words with power and the spirit of God moves in the hearts of unbelieving men to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and to come to a place of repentance. It will be as the masses humble themselves before the God of all flesh. This is what will save us. Are you willing to be used in such a way? Are you ready to be used in such a way? Are you a vessel fit to be used in such a way? You say, what do you mean used in such a way? Well, what if God wanted you to spark that awakening, Christian? What if God wanted Legacy Baptist Church to spark that awakening? What if you had a role to play in the process of bringing this nation back to himself? Are you ready for that? Are you willing? Are you praying that God would do such a thing in our days? What if we could live to see God do a great work of awakening in our days? Do you believe it's even possible? What if we could live to see the Spirit of God move upon an unrighteous nation unto salvation and righteousness? Do you think it's even possible? But let's talk about where it begins. We mentioned already that we are not Israel. We cannot simply extend the promises of God for his covenantal people to us in every respect. And thank God for that. Because there are a lot of things that God has said. There's many blessings that uh, people will regularly try to impose upon uh, our culture, or our churches, or our, our, ourselves as individuals. And, and yet we never see the cursings uh, done the same way. Uh, I think if uh, we were to uh, truly impose such expectations upon ourselves, we probably all have uh, been stoned by now. But that doesn't mean that we cannot draw principles from God's promises that he made with his covenanted people. And it doesn't mean that we cannot seek into the same results that God promised in our own day. Many are familiar with the verse, 2 Chronicles 7.14, it's one that oftentimes patriot groups and uh, um, very politically active yet still religious groups will use. The great promise made to Solomon by God in the night after Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord. The prayer of consecration. And in that night, God said this to the theocratic king. He said, if my people, which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, again, this promise cannot be drawn into our national identity. God's people today is not America. But it is the church, is it not? And a right relationship between God and His church in no way replies a right relationship between God and this nation. Because our nation is under no such covenant with the Lord as Solomon's was in his day. Yes, if God's people in Solomon's day would turn from their sin, then God would fully heal the land. And fully heal the land means bringing all the blessings of Deuteronomy. No plagues, no barrenness, no famines, no drought, no war. But let us be clear. 
While it is not the case that a humble prayer and, and that humble prayer and righteousness among God's people in the church will invariably cause a nation to be forgiven and to be healed. As a matter of fact, some of the most vibrant churches throughout the course of history and even today in the world are places where the government is actively going about to kill them all. We learned a little bit about that on the Tuesday nights with the Waldensians when, when I was gone and Sam was teaching. Persecution is often part and parcel to a vibrant church in a, in a nation. However, it can be said with utmost confidence, it cannot be said that humble prayer and righteousness among God's people will inevitably lead to a righteous nation, but it can what can be said is this. A nation will never come to a place of repentance and healing if God's people are not humbly praying and seeking his face. Simply put, no one in this nation, this nation will not see an awakening if God's people are not in a place of repentance and prayer and righteousness. There will be no awakening if there is not first a revival. If God's people are not revived, the unbeliever, there, there, there will be no great awakening. Why? Because God has chosen to use his church. And if his church is not active, if his church is hiding their light under a bushel, if the church is asleep, then the nation will persist in their unrighteousness. Let's get even a little closer to home as we close this evening. Maybe things aren't as they ought to be in your life, in your marriage, in your family. You're frustrated. You're confused. There's no joy. There's no peace. There is this place of confusion, of consternation, of tension, or of sorrow. As we think through Amos chapter 5, the question is this, who or what have you been running to for solutions, Christian? Has it been to Christ in humility for help, for healing, for direction, for restoration? Or has it been to something else? Have you enfolded into who you are or what you do? Or uh, have you allowed yourself to become hardened? Maybe even silence the voice calling you to that different path. Have you become stubborn? Convinced of your own rightness, determined to push through to the other end without any change in yourself? Have you come to this crossroads and what decision have you chosen? Have you tapped into self? Or will you tap into the most powerful disposition known to man to effect true change? That's the power of humility before God. There is no problem so great that humility cannot draw the heart of God to your advocacy, Christian. There is no confusion. There is no sorrow. There is no loss. There is no frustration. But that the grace of God found through the exercise of humility cannot raise you up to a place of contentment and to peace and to joy in its midst. To humble ourselves before God's way. To humble ourselves before God's word. To seek God and live. To seek good and to love that good. And take note, the promise is not necessarily deliverance from consequences. 
nor is the promise prosperity and wellness. The promise is that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious. In Israel's day, the promise was to them, but that promise is just as potent today. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares on him, for he careth for you. So the question is this this evening. We have a nation, a nation that is going in the wrong direction. Is our church in a place where if God is ready to work, we are able to be used? The question is this. You are at a crossroads. You see, you are in chastening or you see the chastening ahead. And you have to determine which way to go, how to respond, what to fall back upon. How are you doing with humility this evening, Christian? Our society has many problems. The church at large has many problems. Maybe you have many problems. These things are difficult. God's solutions are not always apparent. Not always quick. Not always easy. But from Amos chapter 5, we can know this. First, God's solution always begins with humility. And when there is humility, there will also be grace. That's what I need. That's what you need. That's what the church needs. That's what this country needs. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.